Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast. Relevant and engaging content designed to help you dominate the day. Hello to all. Hope your summer brought you sunshine and energy. In Canada, we had a fabulous month of August. So here we are again. Dr. François Dagbert, our super keen PGY4 Maher Alkadi, and myself, Carol Richard, for an episode of the Journal Club. We chose to focus today on IBD, more specifically Crohn's disease. We will be presenting two articles on two different Crohn's disease subjects. The first article will be focusing on the popular Kono S anastomosis, and the second one will focus on the treatment of complex perianal fistulas using stem cells. Let's jump into the first article. So, François? Yeah, so the first article uh, we will discuss was led by Dr. Luglio as first author and Professor Bucci as a senior author. And uh, is entitled Surgical Prevention of Anastomotic Recurrence by Excluding Mesentery in Crohn's Disease, the Supreme CD Study, a Randomized Control Trial. It was published in 2020 in the Annals of Surgery. The background of this study is basically a, a trial that aimed to provide a randomized control data comparing CONOS anastomosis and staple ileocolic site-to-site anastomosis. It was performed in a single in a single tertiary referral center in Italy. Okay, so Francois, why is it important to talk about the way an anastomosis is fashioned in uh, resections for Crohn's disease? Well, we know that a high percentage of Crohn's disease patients will require surgical treatment at some point in their lives. It is also known that surgery improves quality of life but is not curative, and one of the major post-operative concerns is anastomotic recurrence, which is specifically a problem following an ileocolic resection. Multiple risk factors for recurrence are quite established, like smoking habits, age at onset of disease, behavior of disease according to the Montreal classification, and the presence of perianal disease as well as requirement for systemic treatment. But surgical factors, such as the type of anastomosis, whether be it end-to-end or side-to-side, and extension of mesenteric resection may also have an impact of recurrence. To date, whether one anastomotic technique is able to formally reduce surgical recurrence rates remains debated. So, Maya, what's the CONOS anastomosis, and why has it attracted such interest in the colorectal surgical world? Yeah, data has shown that many anastomotic recurrences arise on the mesenteric side. And based on that principle, the CONOS anastomosis, mostly used for ileocoleric resections, was developed by Dr. Toru Kono and was first described in 2011 in the DCR, or for those who are not familiar, the Disease of Colon and Rectum Journal. It consists in transecting the vowel perpendicular to its mesentery with a stapler device, Then both stumps are sutured together to create a supporting column to maintain the diameter and the dimension of the anastomosis. 
Longitudinal enterotomies of 7 to 8 centimeters are made on the antimesenteric sides of the two segments of, of the bowel, approximately 1 centimeter from the staple line. The side-to-side -side antimesenteric anastomosis is then performed in a transverse fashion, and the final result is an antimesenteric functional end-to-end hand-sewn wide-mouth anastomosis. What makes this anastomosis unique is the supporting column, as previously described, which is outlined in the name of the anastomosis, i.e. Kono S, for supporting. And that should prevent distortion and strictures of the anastomosis. Also, the fact that the mesentery is excluded from the anastomosis might lower the risk of recurrence. Okay, so for those of you listening... If you are not familiar with the CONOS, because the description was very well read by Maya, but it, it's not so simple. So please put this podcast to pause, Google or YouTube. Otherwise, it'll be very hard to understand the further discussion. So to date, the preliminary results comparing the CONOS anastomosis with conventional surgical techniques suggest significant reduction in endoscopic and surgical recurrent rates. However, most of the data available are from non-randomized data. So let's take a close look at this randomized control trial. Maya? What was the patient population in this study, and what were the endpoints? Yeah, so the, the patient population was based on consecutive patients uh, with ileocolic Crohn's disease requiring intestinal resection for medically refractory disease or stricturing slash penetrating complications. As for the primary endpoint of the manuscript, it was endoscopic recurrence based on the Root-Geert score after six months. And for those who don't know, the root geared score is used as a standard endoscopic evaluation of luminal activity in Crohn's disease and includes presence of aphthous ulcers, ileitis, mucosal inflammation, and presence of nodules, as well as narrowing. There was a secondary endpoint, actually multiple endpoints, that included clinical recurrence at 12 and 24 months, endoscopic recurrence after 18 months, as well as surgical recurrence after 24 months. To summarize the results, 79 patients with ileocolic Crohn's disease were randomized into two groups, the CONOS anastomosis group containing 36 patients and the conventional group containing 43 patients. The conventional group obviously included the patients who had a side-to-side -side mechanical anastomosis. Groups were comparable for baseline characteristics, including tobacco use, reoperations, behavior type, length of disease, and pre-op, as well as post-op systemic treatment. Uh, laparoscopy was performed in about 50% of cases. And after six months, 22%, meaning one out of five in the CONOS group, and 63%, meaning two-thirds in the conventional group, presented an endoscopic recurrence. And after six months, there were also less severe postoperative endoscopic recurrence, meaning 14% in the CONOS group versus 35% in the um, conventional group. There was also less clinical recurrence at, 25, at 24 and as well as 12 months in the CONOS group, comparing 11% for the CONOS versus 30% in the conventional group. As for surgical recurrence rates, um, there were at 0% in the CONOS group after 24 months 
and close to 5% in the conventional group. There were no differences in the post-operative outcomes. All right, that's a great description of what they came up with. And in fact, the authors concluded that this is the first randomized control trial comparing a CONOS type anastomosis with standard anastomosis in Crohn's disease. And uh, their results uh, shown a significant reduction in post-operative endoscopic and clinical recurrence rate for patients who underwent the CONOS anastomosis. So, Maya, did they use a validated index to measure clinical recurrence? Because this can be a subjective uh, variable. Yeah, so the authors uh, did confirm that they used the CDAI or the Crohn's Disease Activity Index um, for the clinical follow-up of their patients. Which is the most frequently used validated index for measurement of clinical recurrence. So this is quite satisfactory. Definitely. Okay, so this is a very relevant study because it is it was performed in a randomized fashion and it addresses an intervention where surgical technique could potentially lead to fewer anastomotic recurrence. I have a few thoughts on why the CONOS anastomosis could have led to less endoscopic and, and clinical recurrence rates. Uh, the triggers of anastomotic recurrence are multifactorial. The anastomotic configuration influences luminal diameter, fecal stasis, bowel vascularization, and bacterial overgrowth, which are probable factors on anastomotic recurrence. Perianastomotic innervation is thought to remain intact when creating the anastomosis described by Kono. For these reasons, the Kono-S anastomosis seems to offer an advantage from a scientific standpoint. However, no consensus in the scientific literature has been reached about this topic. So, my, what are the strengths of this study? Well, as you previously mentioned, uh, first of all, it's a randomized control trial with, with, that comes with its own strengths. I believe patient selection was well-defined in the article, and follow-up and assessment took into consideration endoscopy as well as clinical assessment. Great. And uh, Dr. Richard, what do you think are the downsides of this study? Well, the primary endpoint is based on endoscopy. And we know that endoscopy is a subjective evaluation, although that the validated Rutgers score was used. Until we have AI for the moment, the primary endpoint is, is subjective. And as the assessment were done by a gastroenterologist, they cannot be blinded to the type of anastomosis. So for me, the primary endpoint is potentially biased. Another downside to this study is the short follow-up. It is well known that most clinical and surgical recurrences occur probably after five years. This trial ended after two years, so certainly a longer follow-up would have been preferred. Lastly, different post-op medical treatments were assigned to patient. This is a major confounding factors in the results obtained. Yeah, Dr. Dagbert, um, what is, in your opinion, yet to be studied in the future regarding this type of anastomosis? For sure, we will uh, want to have longer-term 
follow-up. Uh, as of now, the only long-term follow-up data that is available is uh, some uh, retrospective series uh, where it's difficult to evaluate the, the efficacy on the long on the long run. Uh, the other thing that's very important, as Dr. Isha mentioned, is the whole impact of recurrence regarding to the medical treatment of Crohn's disease. This is a major point in the treatment of these patients, and uh, we don't know yet if one type of biologic or any type of, of medical treatment would impact uh, the recurrence rates for such type of anastomosis. I believe another major question that is one of the hot topics right now is the role of the mesentery in the recurrence after a resection in Crohn's disease, especially after an ileocolic resection. In the original description, Kono favors an approach where the mesentery is divided very close to the bowel to preserve vascularization and innervation of the bowel. Now there is some newer evidence that suggests that a resection of a larger piece of mesentery alongside the bowel could lower the risk of recurrence by itself. You have to take into consideration there that thick and fibrotic mesentery from long-standing Crohn's disease can be very tricky to dissect. And the more proximal you go in these conditions, the higher risk uh, you have of running into trouble. So exactly. be careful in these situations. But probably for people where the disease is not as advanced. There could be a, there could be some data. Actually, there is some control trials right now uh, underway, but we don't have the 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 results yet. But to evaluate this uh, part, so are there any possibilities to reconcile those two principles, combining a resection of the mesentery as well as a conoes and asthmatic configuration, will be something that will be looked at in the future. I'm I'm sure. Exactly. So, Maher, what are the current ASCRS point of view regarding recommendation on type of anastomosis that is preferred after ileocolic resection? So, um, in their most recent clinical practice guidelines for the Entitled Surgical Management of Crohn's Disease that was published in 2020, if I'm not mistaken, uh, the ASCRS stated that following ileocolic resection, reconstruction using side-to-side, side-to-end, or end-to-end hand-sewn or stapled anastomosis uh, could be performed based on surgeon preference and experience, and that that's a very reasonable thing to, to, to do. Well, in other words, it's basically saying do the anastomosis you want. Do the anastomosis the way you're used to exactly. as long as you do it the right way and properly. Uh, there is no strong recommendation regarding one uh, anastomosis over another. This article may have an impact um, for future guidelines if, obviously, other multicenter randomized controlled trials become available. I'm excited to see what the ASRS has to say about the CONOS anastomosis in an updated version of the CPG, uh, as they only included preliminary results from the of exactly. the Supreme Crohn's disease study that was published back in 2018. Basically, the ASCRS is saying do whatever is preferable in your hands. Are there other organizations with guidelines on this topic? 
Yeah. Um, so I looked also into the European Crohn's and Colitis Organization, um, and they recommend in their most recent CPG that was published in 2019, this staple site-to-site anastomosis uh, for ileocolic resections in patients with Crohn's disease, as opposed to a hand-sewn end-to-end anastomosis. Okay. Are you aware of any trial? I personally Comparing. am not aware of okay. any trial. But there was actually a Canadian trial led by Robin McLeod, and I was part of this, this trial. That's quite a few years ago where we randomized side-to-side staple versus end-to-end, and uh, it was a lot of work put in uh, to uh, have a conclusion that there was no clinical No difference. difference. Mm-hmm. So I guess that conclusion goes in hand with, uh, with the, the ASCRS uh, recommendations. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Doctors uh, Richard and Dagbert, have you had any experience or the chance to f- perform a conoes anastomosis in your practice? And if so, what was your experience like for well, this type of anastomosis? you know, we're, we're uh, quite uh, to date here. <laughs> so I would say probably since about two years, uh, we're doing CONOS. Most surgeons, we're eight surgeons, and I think most uh, surgeons are doing CONOS. We're a high-volume IBD center. And um, I think that when the conditions are favorable uh, after the resection, I, I will usually go do a CONOS. And it's quite easy to do, in fact, after you've done a few, uh, you find that it's it's even fun to be doing it because it's hand sewing and mm-hmm. it's always coming back to the fundamental basics yeah. of anastomosis. Uh, so uh, I think that uh, I'm, I'm uh, keener on it. How about you, Francois? Well, I think it's a, it's also a very interesting anastomosis to perform and I'll definitely do it, especially in cases where it's recurrence, where they already had an, an, a side-to-side anastomosis where uh, they had a complication in the long run. Uh, I've actually modified a little bit my technique. I know the original technique was uh, described with interrupted sutures for the the interior layer of the anastomosis, and I will basically do a, a running suture for the interior part as well as the posterior part. It's just a little bit faster, but mm-hmm. it works. It works well. I think the rates of the rate of leaks or problems is similar to what we had with a different type of anastomosis. Obviously, these patients sometimes are difficult and uh, have uh, abscesses, have some uh, malnutrition. Uh, so the leak well, rate is yeah. probably a little bit higher. Maybe than those your... patients will kind of modify and maybe even go on to a stoma. You know? Sometimes you don't so, really have much uh, choice. But yeah, I think it's... I, I, I think it's a keeper wouldn't you say yeah definitely so the second article we have is uh, actually on uh, the use of stem cells for complex perianal fistulas in Crohn's disease patient uh, the study is entitled expanded allogenic adipose derived med- mesenchymal stem cells cx601 for complex perianal fistulas in Crohn's disease a phase 3 randomized double blind control trial it was published by Dr. Panes from the Admire Crohn's Disease Study Group Collaborators and was published in 2016 in The Lancet. Okay, so Dr. Richard, 
What do you think is the relevance of choosing this study? As we know, perianal fistula are a common manifestation of Crohn's disease patients, with up to 30 to 40% of Crohn's disease patients affected by perianal fistulas. Moreover, up to 80% of the perianal fistulas in Crohn's disease are defined as complex, and these are very challenging to treat. Success rate of medical treatment only for anal fistula is quite low, in fact, and surgical treatment is more often aimed at improving quality of life and not necessarily at fistula closure. There is a need for better treatment for perianal fistulizing Crohn's disease. Definitely. We've all been treating those patients with cetons in for years and years and exactly. nothing more to offer. Exactly. All right. So in this study, injection of mesenchymal stem cells is compared to placebo injection. The stem cells act as an anti-inflammatory treatment and an immunomodulator. In fact, initial testing was achieved in a study published in the International Journal of Colorectal Disease in 2013, where 24 patients with Crohn's disease and complex perianal fistulas were treated with the stem cells, with more than half of the patients showing closure of the external opening and the absence of uh, collection or abscesses after 24 weeks of treatment. So, Maya, can you go on with the description of this uh, 2016 Lancet study? Yeah, so the authors aim to assess for both safety and efficacy of injection of stem cells for treatment refractory complex perianal fistulas. More specifically, they enrolled patients that were adults with non-active or mildly active luminal Crohn's disease for at least six months, but with complex perianal fistulas. The fistulas had to have a maximum of two internal and three external openings and had to have been draining for at least six weeks prior to inclusion. The authors completed a randomized double-blind parallel group placebo control study at 49 hospitals in total in seven European countries as well as Israel from 2012 to 2017. The patients were randomized to a single, single intralesional injection of 120 million cells of stem cells or 24 milliliters of saline solution, which acted as the placebo, with stratification according to uh, baseline treatment. Treatment was administered by an unblinded surgeon with a blinded gastroenterologist and a radiologist assessing the therapeutic effect. The primary endpoint was a combination of two assessments. First, remission at week 24, meaning clinical assessment of closure of all treated external openings that were draining at baseline and absence of collections of more than two centimeters of the treated perianal fistulas that were confirmed by a blinded MRI reading. Efficacy was assessed in an intention-to-treat population as well as a modified intention-to-treat population, where a safety was assessed in the safety population, meaning all patients that received study treatment. Okay, Maya, can you give just a quick reminder to our listeners about the difference between intention to treat and per protocol or efficacy? Yeah, so per protocol involves examining data from participants um, that were compliant with methodology. 
In this study, the primary endpoint was analyzed in the per-protocol population, which included all randomized and treated patients who had both an MRI after baseline as well as clinical fistula assessment with no major protocol deviations that affected the primary endpoint. Intention-to-treat analysis keeps all patients' data in the group that they were originally assigned to by the randomization process. Dr. Dagbert, could you briefly explain to our listeners how the injection is performed and uh, what did the clinical follow-up look like? Basically, this uh, the, the surgical treatment uh, was a combination of two surgeries. So to make sure that uh, patient homogeneity at baseline uh, was uh, respected, there was a fistula preparation visit, which basically was performed in the OR and included an examination under anesthesia, a fistula curtage, and a cetone placement. So this step ensure a clean fistula and the absence of the absence of abscesses for the next step. The patients then had a short course of antibiotics, and then two weeks later, the patient was brought back in the OR for another EUA. At the second operation, there was closure of the internal opening using an absorbable stitch. Closure was confirmed by uh, injecting 10 cc's of saline through the external opening to make sure that the internal opening was closed. And then, depending on the group the patients were assigned in, there was injection of 20 cc's of a placebo or uh, stem cells. So in total, there was a dose of 120 millions of stem cells that was used, and it was divided in between the different tracks, depending if there was one, two, or three fistula tracks for each patient. Uh, As for clinical follow-up, well, fistula closure was uh, clinically assessed at week 6, 12, 18, and 24 by a blinded investigator, which was a gastroenterologist, uh, who examined the patient for the presence of spontaneous drainage or drainage after gentle uh, finger compression around the external opening. Okay, and uh, my in terms of findings, what were the, the results uh, yeah. of the study? Um, 212 patients were um, randomly assigned, 107 to stem cells and 105 to placebo. There was a significantly greater proportion of patients treated with stem cells uh, versus placebo that achieved uh, the combined remission in the intention-to-treat group, meaning 50% in the stem cell group versus 34%. This difference was statistically significant with a p-value of 0.02. 18 patients uh, out of 103 patients of the stem cell group, meaning 17% of patients, versus uh, 30% in the placebo group experienced treatment-related adverse events, uh, the most common of which were anal abscess and proctalgia. And the authors conclude by saying that stem cells are an effective and safe safe treatment for complex perianal fistulas in patients with Crohn's disease who did not respond to conventional or biological treatments or both. It's in fact quite interesting to see that the results are consistent across all statistical population. Although more patients in the stem cell group than the placebo group having more than one fistula, patients were stratified according to their concomitant treatment at randomization, i.e. anti-TNF or immunomodulator, both or neither. 
In some subpopulation, although stem cells did not reach statistical significance, there was always a trend favoring stem cell injection. Continued use of Crohn's disease drugs likely contributed to having a beneficial effect on fistula healing, although the stratification of patients ensured that this effect was similar in both groups. François, how would you explain some success in the placebo group? That is actually a very interesting uh, part of this study, and it was brought up in the discussion section of the article. Um, maybe just like the fistula curtage with the surgical drainage of all the collection and a closure of the internal orifice might have worked as a fistula treatment for these patients. Also, in many of these patients, there was a concomitant use of immunomodulator or anti-TNF treatment, uh, which are likely to have beneficial effect in this uh, population. As we all know that sometimes the fistula in Crohn's disease patient will just close with the medical treatment. So Dr. Richard, do you see this as a potential standard of care treatment for the complex perianal fistula patients in, uh, in the Crohn's disease patient? Well, for sure, this new treatment is of great interest. It is a low complication rate procedure, which seems to give very good initial closure rate. If we can have any type of procedure that gives up to 30 to 50% of success rate of closure, I mean, this would be of great benefit for our Crohn's disease perianal patients. However, there are two factors that, in my view, prohibit at this point in time this procedure to be recognized as a standard of care. First of all, availability of stem cells and its cost. These two points are a factor. Is there really a cost benefit associated? with this treatment. Secondly, the data up to date is like 24 months at uh, 24 weeks. I mean, that's what six months. So I think that we need to have one to two years data at least. So we have to say, you know, this will be beneficial for maybe two years at least, because we know these patients can reoccur. But if they're okay for one to two years or even more, I mean, that's a, a great benefit. Yeah, it's a, it goes back similar to the first article. When it comes to patients and their follow-up, especially with Crohn's disease, ideally we need more time in order to figure out whether these interventions truly have a benefit on patients' quality of lives. Exactly. As well and as efficacy you of know, treatment. Uh, Crohn's disease is a long-life disease. Yeah. So, Maya, based on this data, are there certain patients with Crohn's disease with perianal fistula that would not be amenable to stem cells? Yeah, um, patients with active luminal Crohn's disease, I, I believe, should not be considered because it's been shown that treatment success is substantially lower in this scenario. And also patients with rectovaginal fistulas. And Why? In a, Why rectovaginal fistulas? Because they're a major problem. It, it truly is, but I, I believe the rectovaginal fistulas are usually shorter and in an anatomical position where injection exactly. might not be... So, uh, It's, it's the tract is so short yeah. that it's hard for any product to really remain in, in, in that, that fistula. Area. 
and, and infiltrate all the tissue around it. And um, also any patient with a significant abscess greater, especially greater than two centimeters, um, should first be adequately, adequately drained prior to considering any treatment. All right. Do you find, uh, Dr. Richard, that there, uh, there are other points to critique in this study? I do have to say yes. <laughs> Evaluation of perianal disease, in my view, and I think most surgeons will be in accordance with this, is usually done by experienced surgeons and even by colorectal surgeons. I mean, I would say that in North America, most gastroenterologists are not so accustomed to assessing perianal disease activity. Maybe in Europe, and this paper is from Europe, but certainly not in North America. So I kind of was grinching my teeth when I saw that the evaluation was being done by gastroenterologists because I think that surgeons are more adequately trained to truly assess whether a fistula is closed or not. Yeah. And just to conclude for our listeners, I'll, I'll be asking both of you the same question as for the first article. Because since you've participated in the North, North American study about stem cells for complex perianal fistulas, what has been your experience so far? And do you have any yeah. comments? To yeah, add? we participated in the Admire Crohn's Disease 2 study. And um, so we randomized some patients, not a whole lot, but a few. But certainly we were keeners because we want something that works. And really, I truly believe that stem cells may be the way to go in a certain very narrow population. All in all, I think it's a fairly simple procedure. procedure. And any surgeon who's used to dealing with perineal disease can become proficient at performing it within a couple of cases. Right. So hopefully in the next couple of years we'll, we'll have that because uh, it's, it's, it's a huge problem for patients. And these patients are young. They have cetons. They have external orifices with a bit of seepage, you know, from, from the orifices. So we're looking. We're looking for... Uh, for a potential cure. Exactly. Yeah. So in conclusion to this journal club, we hope that you've gained knowledge on the two new surgical procedures that in my view are probably benefiting patients. And when enough cumulative high quality data will be available, the two procedures may become a certain standard of care. Until next time, à la, à la prochaine. Be sure to check out our website at www.behindthenife.org for more great content. You can also follow us on Twitter at Behind the Knife and Instagram at Behind the Knife Podcast. If you like what you hear, please take a minute to leave us a review. Content produced by Behind the Knife is intended for health professionals and is for educational purposes only. We do not diagnose, treat, or offer patient-specific advice. Thank you for listening. Until next time, dominate the day.